Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Robert Yeager and the Tao Foundation. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalbethanchel. Debate surrounding the U.S. prison population has focused on the effects of mass incarceration and the need to help ex-offenders transition successfully to the outside, like having meaningful re-entry programs that connect them with jobs and housing so they don't end up back in prison. But there are still plenty of Americans living and dying in prisons. Kaiser Health News reported in December the prison population is aging, with prisoners over 55 growing 250% in just 15 years. Now coming up, we'll hear about how prisons in some states, including here in Connecticut, are handling this changing demographic, specifically implementing programs like hospice to care for dying prisoners. How do you think states should handle the growing number of aging inmates? You can join the conversation, 860-275-7266. Email where we live at WNPR.org. As always, find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. First, we wanted to look at a possible change in federal Medicaid that could impact ex-offenders here in Connecticut. Joining me in studio now is Adam Wisniewski, a freelance reporter for the Connecticut Health Investigative Team at CHIT.org. Adam, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. We're talking about the aging prison population. What does it look like in Connecticut? So, like a lot of states, Connecticut's uh, prison population is getting older. Um, I think last week was the lowest our prison population has been in like 20 years, but for aging inmates, it's actually higher for older older inmates. And, uh, you know, this is a problem in a lot of states, and uh, Connecticut isn't too bad off generally compared to other states, but... We still have uh, over 60 population that is going up, and these, you know, people are. It's tougher to take care of them. They have more health problems. That it's it's a big problem in a lot of states, and uh, Connecticut is, you know, definitely not alone in that. As we age, we do end up with more health problems, as you say. Right. While someone's in prison, who's picking up the bill for an inmate's health care? So going back to the beginning of Medicaid, uh, there's been a rule. It's an exclusion rule, which is that if you're in prison the feds can't pay for your health care. It's on the states to do it. So you cannot get federally funded Medicaid or Medicare to pay for anyone who's actually in prison. So states are paying for this, and it's causing other states to go bankrupt. Uh, I mean, it is, it's a huge problem where uh, prisons are just not suited to care for nursing home level care for people who are who have you know dementia and are bedridden and have really serious uh, you know terminal diseases. And so different states are sort of handling this problem in, in different ways. And in Connecticut, uh, the, one, the one way they've, they've been doing it is um, they have a hospice program, which I think you're going to talk about later. But they also have this uh, thing called nursing home parole, which is uh, a way that they get people uh, paroled to, to instead of, you know, dying or, or having, you know, living with their terminal illness in, in prison, they are getting out and they're going to community nursing homes, mm. um, which has been going on forever in, in, in for when people are paroled. But this actually gives the state another option to get them to a nursing home uh, rather than just the, you know, underused compassionate parole or sort of medical parole. So this nursing home is in Rocky Hill? Right. Uh, it's uh, 60 West in Rocky Hill uh, is this is this the nursing home that the state contracts with. And, uh, you know, it's there's only about 75 people in there right now, uh, so it's it's pretty small, uh, but it's uh, 
giving better care to a population of, of people that, you know, rather than having that care in prison, which is very expensive and very hard to do for the state, uh, they go to a community nursing home that's better equipped to do this. Um, and 60 West is, is just like a regular nursing home. And they, they're um, far better suited to take care of people than a, a place like, you know, a prison mm-hmm. in Connecticut. Now, in your report for CHIT.org, uh, the federal centers for Medicare and, and Medicaid, they're actually giving funds now to Connecticut to help pay for these paroled inmates to get care at this particular nursing home. Explain the process. So uh, the state um, for years had a problem. They couldn't find nursing homes who were willing to take people uh, who were paroled. Uh, so people who were eligible to be released from prison, they couldn't find spots for them to go because a lot of nursing homes, you know, People didn't want to have uh, their grandpa next to a convict. <laughs> so uh, this was a process where they were actually eligible to be released. They should be free people. And instead, they're languishing in prison in a bed, and the state is paying astronomical amount of money to take care of them. So what the state did was they said, why don't we have a nursing home where uh, we can contract with that will just be for uh, paroled inmates? And uh, they put an RFP out, they, uh, a private company, uh, Secure Care, uh, followed through, and uh, they took over what was an existing nursing home that had been closed for a little while in Rocky Hill and reopened it as um, a, you know, anyone can go to this nursing home. It's, it's, it's open to, the whole, to, to anyone who wants to, uh, to go there. Just they have a deal with the state where uh, paroled inmates will go directly to there. So they have a spot where it's a seamless process and uh, people who need nursing home level care who aren't a risk to public safety uh, are sent there uh, to get care. The term paroled inmates is is interesting. So these are technically still inmates, but they've been given a special parole to allow them to be outside the prison? So like we were saying before about uh, how if you're in prison, you can't have the feds mm-hmm. pick up any money. Uh, this is a sort of a way around that. Um, states have been trying to do that sort of thing in different ways, and uh, the Center for Medicaid and Medicare Services sort of can grant you uh, waivers in different ways, and they can also just give you this approval if they say it, it's it's not breaking the law. And so what this is is uh, people in Connecticut in, in prison who are have terminal illnesses, and they're at the end of their life, and they, uh, if the state deems them not a public safety risk, they can get to 60 West uh, in a few different ways. Um, one is compassionate parole release, which is if you're at the very end of your life and you're going to die, they'll, they can send you there. Um, but the, that thing is very rarely used. It's in a lot of states, and it's just sort of you know one of the m- many different types of parole that doesn't get used because it's sort of passed by legislatures to feel good about themselves, but they never actually use it. So in 2013, in uh, coinciding with uh, this uh, 60 West nursing home, uh, the state passed what was a bill that allowed them to do what's called nursing home parole. Mm-hmm. So rather than they, – they are paroled, so they are, they are not prisoners any longer, but they, they're leaving prison to go to a nursing home, and so they are they're, they're paroled – I guess I was calling them paroled inmates, but they are – they become on parole. They have different uh, – um, things they have to meet, standards. They still have parole officers, even though they may be, you know, in a bed, uh, and their parole officers to come see them. But it's it's un- no different than other people on parole in Connecticut. Just they are in need of nursing home level care. 
This is where we live. Today we're focusing on aging inmates and ex-offenders. That's because when you look at the U.S. prison population, inmates 55 and over are the fastest growing population. That impacts the cost of health care both on, both on the inside and the outside. In studio with me is freelance reporter for CHIT, the Connecticut Health Investigative Team, Adam Wisniewski. Now you mentioned that these, patient, these inmates are, are bedridden, but how did the community respond when the state opened 60 West? So there's been a lot of... Um coverage in the, over the last few years, uh, especially in the Harvard Current, about uh, some residents nearby who, you know, don't want that in their neighborhood. And, you know, uh, that is, was definitely a concern for the state and for the neighborhood. And, you know, it, this is something that we have a very, very large prison population in, in the country that was going up for years. And, you know, the sort of the tough on crime era in the 90s sort of made the p- prison population, you know, boom to this you know, massive amount of people we really can't take care of any longer. And so there's also very, very strict parole policies. People don't want, they kind of want to ignore the problem that they don't want to let people out. And, um, but there's people in there that are, you know, on their last legs who have terminal illnesses and they have been sent away for prison, sometimes on these like three strikes rules in the 90s where, you know, that wasn't a, you know, they didn't murder someone. It wasn't. It was. You know, there were lower level crimes, and so these these people they they need regular care just like anyone else. And so a lot of people in the neighborhood sort of didn't want it in there, though. And you know, that's that's a definitely a concern. And 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 I think they there haven't been any incidents at at sixty West over the last three years. And so I they, there are still a couple active lawsuits, um, but I you know I don't. I don't think it's it's uh, as big of a problem anymore. But. Now, we were talking about um, this program that allows people that are on their last uh, legs, so to speak, to yeah. get compassion uh, in a nursing facility. Couched, though, on the fact that the state actually will get Medicaid reimbursement to pay for that care. Yes. What about when people finish their sentence and they're out? Uh, you mentioned earlier that the prison population in Connecticut is at its lowest levels. So a lot of ex-offenders who've been in jail for some time also um, with health conditions are now on the outside. What's been paying for their health care? And what's going to happen now with all of what's in flux in Washington with the Affordable Care Act? So Medicaid expansion, well, when it happened, was great for Connecticut and great for ex-offenders. Uh, the, the Fed started picking up the tab on a lot of reentry services. So what happened was uh, when they expanded Medicaid in Connecticut, uh, the Husky D, which is what Connecticut calls it, uh, which uh, covers um, childless adults up to uh, age 65 who are living up to 133% of the poverty level, uh, a lot of ex-offenders fall into that category to get Husky D. I think last year it was almost 90% of new Medicaid signups walking out of prison were, were eligible for Husky D, which is enormous and very significant because all these people walking out of prison who in all over the country it's a problem to get better services to them and to streamline services where especially in the first couple of days of, of getting out of prison can mean relapse, can mean reoffending, and so Getting them hooked, you know, right onto Medicaid is uh, uh, something that states are all sort of dealing with. So when Connecticut exp- expanded Medicaid, what they did was they made an effort to sign up everyone walking out of prison on Medicaid. And when they did that, they realized a lot of the services that the state had been paying for, drug abuse treatment services, mental health services, they didn't have to pay for anymore because the feds were picking up the tabs. So they just they cut them. 
uh, the DOC cut contracts with nonprofits, cut millions of dollars, and sort of left a lot of nonprofits who help reoffend uh, uh, ex-offenders scramble for a bit to try to get changed to a Medicaid system where uh, they had to, you know, r- change the way they bill. But in the end result, now uh, the same services are happening uh, for the most part, and now the feds are picking up most of the tab. So for now, for now, if uh, the bill that passed last week, um, you know, we'll see what happens in the Senate. But that bill would uh, cap Medicaid expansion uh, for or Medicaid funding to the state. The state would lose billions uh, over over time. You know, I think one, uh, Malloy said a, a billion a year starting in 2019, and it would be you know people that are getting health services out of prison right now that would not be getting the services that they currently get if, if that happens. This is interesting because often when we talk about uh, recidivism, so much focus again on jobs, getting people housing. But health care, as state officials say, is a vital part of helping people not end up back in jail when they realize they have the services, maybe they have a dr- an old drug habit and they're able to get treatment. Right. Uh, one of the guys I talked to in, in Bridgeport, he said to me, how can you be looking for a job if you're dealing with uh, an illness? Like you need to, it's sort of part of the whole, um, you know, employment is important, of course, housing is important, of course, and those tend to get a ton of the attention, but health services are, you know, an integral part of that. And um, the programming in Connecticut uh, that, you know, drug abuse treatment programs, uh, counseling, mental health programs, you know, all the data proves that they help reduce recidivism. So people going through these programs when they complete them is much lower chance that they're going to reoffend. So they are working. And, you know, it's something that if if they stop, uh, if they're not, if they don't have access to those services, then, you know, the numbers are probably going to go up. Earlier, we mentioned 60 West, this nursing home facility where paroled inmates um, are able to go to get care. Um, what would happen in terms of, again, the health care debate in Washington while the state just received uh, federal funding through Medicaid? Could that also be taken away? So that's sort of what I thought, too. That was my hunch. But uh, as I looked into it, it, I don't think that would actually be uh, affected because it's not... Um, it wasn't something that is covered under the the Medicaid expansion, and I don't. I think that it's actually going to be safe uh, from for the Fed funding. For mm-hmm. it covers fifty percent. Um, we're just saving the, saving the state about a five million dollars a year. So I don't think that it will actually be affected. Um, but um, there's still you know a enormous amount of other services that that would be. You're saying it's saving the state five million dollars. This uh, this nursing home. Program. Yes, um, it the cost of the facilities is about ten million dollars a year, and, and the feds are paying for half. The state's paying for half. So uh, taxpayers in Connecticut are saving because the feds are pick, uh, picking up half the tab. Meanwhile, sta- other states are looking to Connecticut as a model. Yeah, so other states have um, are interested in what Connecticut did, and Connecticut was you know it's prison population is small compared to most places, so it's kind of easier for them to. It may not seem this way that it's, you know, it's easy for the Connecticut to get something done, <laughs> but um, <laughs> it is easier in the large scheme of things for Connecticut to um, to make a small progress and to make criminal justice reforms. So other states, Kentucky, Michigan, um, Wisconsin, are sort of looking at Connecticut, and they have bigger prison populations, a bigger problem of aging inmates, and they're saying they're seeing the the feds pick up half the tab on. Uh, caring for older inmates, and you know their eyes are lighting up, and I think that they're pretty um, interested in, in in following it. 
Adam Wisniewski is a freelance reporter for the Connecticut Health Investigative Team. We'll tweet out links to two of your stories from CHIT.org. Adam, thanks so much for coming on. Thanks for having me, Lucy. Coming up, we'll hear about hospice care in Connecticut prisons and elsewhere. Do you think prisoners should be made comfortable and shown compassion in their final weeks and days? Join the conversation, 860-275-7266. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Since 2001, some prisons in Connecticut have offered hospice programs. CHIT.org reported the first was McDougal Walker Correctional Institution in Suffield. Later, a similar program was created, started rather in 2003 at Connecticut's only women's prison, York and Niantic. And in 2007, another hospice program began at a second men's prison, Osborne Correctional Institution in Summers. Our next guest got to know one prisoner who was a volunteer at Osborne's hospice program. Joining us now from the studios of WHYY is Mara Ewing, a freelance reporter, author of the narratively piece, The Prison Where Inmates Help Each Other Die with Dignity. You can join the conversation, 860-275-7266. Mara, welcome to the show. Thank you. Glad to be here. Um, In your piece, uh, you wrote that more Americans are dying behind bars than ever before. Uh, Walk us through what the statistics show us nationwide in our prisons. Well, it's uh, as you discussed earlier in the show, this is really a product of the um, tough on crime 80s and 90s. People who were in their 20s then and were given long sentences are now aging. And um, anyone over 55 is considered elderly in prison, uh, shorter life expectancy. So across the country, we're seeing a boom of of elderly inmates, which have um, much greater medical needs. Uh, the reporter that was here earlier mentioned in Connecticut there's a ability for ha- to have compassionate release. Is that something other states have on the books, and how well, how often is it used? Yeah, so that is on the books, I think, in most states, and it is rarely used, as far as I know, in any state. So your story profiled a prison here in Connecticut, Osborne Correctional, in Summers, Connecticut. It has a hospice program. How did you hear about it? And tell us how you went through the process of learning more. Sure. Um, So I was first introduced to the idea of prison hospice through a short documentary, an HBO documentary that profiled a program in uh, Illinois or Iowa. And that was sort of a look at the very intimate relationship between a a patient and his um, inmate caretaker. And that sparked my interest. And so I looked into what other programs existed. And I was living in New York City at the time. um, And Connecticut was one of the the closest programs geographically to me. And how do you get access to uh, prisoners within a state prison who are able to volunteer? (laughs) Well, um, it's sort of a long process. Uh, I I went about it sort of two ways. I got to know one of the nurses who runs the program, who's really passionate about it and really eager to have this story told. And she uh, she and I met sort of casually. We got coffee. Um, and she helped me navigate sort of the ins and outs of getting access to the prison, um, which is really just a matter of getting permission um, and sort of convincing them that this is a worthwhile uh, project for them to, to set up a a tour and to let you come in and, and talk with the inmates. 
Uh, for our listeners who have actually experienced hospice for a loved one, uh, we're used to a setting um, much like a hospital where you have medical professionals who are trained in palliative care. How does it work inside a prison? And when we talk about prisoners who are volunteers in the program, what kind of training do they do they get? So it's really interesting. The, um, in terms of the setting where this actually happens, they have set up a room. It's one room within the hospital ward of the prison, and um, past volunteers have worked to make it as comfortable as possible with um, bright colored murals on the wall. And um, the patients are allowed to bring in things with them like family photos or any other sort of comforting um, items that they might want to bring. And they get like a, a television, things like that. So it's essentially just trying to create as much comfort as possible in a you know pretty rigid setting. Um, and then in terms of training, the inmates go through, I think it's a 10-week training. Um, and they learn, it's sort of a two-pronged training. One side of it is the sort of nuts and bolts of how to um, care for someone in terms of changing bed sheets and helping someone bathe, uh, changing diapers, you know, things like that. And and I should say that they're not uh, there are nurses around too to help with uh, the medical side of things. Um, and then the other part of the training is really like the emotional side. Um, you know, spending someone's last days with them is really intimate and uh, really difficult. And so there's a lot of emphasis on getting the the men, the inmate volunteers to kind of be in touch with their, their own feelings around death and dying um, and to make them comfortable and able to be present during this, uh, you know, really sensitive period. This is where we live. I'm speaking with Mara Ewing. She's joining us from the studios at WHYY. She's a freelance reporter, author of Narratively, the Narratively piece, piece rather, The Prison Where Inmates Help Each Other Die with Dignity. How many prisons uh, around the country have hospice, uh, Mara? And then when we look at Connecticut's program, how many prisoners are actually going through the hospice program? So nationwide, there are um, about 65 prisons that have these programs. And I should say that's the most up-to-date tally, which is about 10 years old. This isn't something that's really kept track of at a national scale. Um, and there's lots of like small programs that like might be kind of like, do you count them or not count them, you know, sort of iterations of this, this model. Um, so, but anyways, a, a pretty small portion uh, when you look at the whole picture. Um, and in Connecticut, well, I can say in Osborne, um, I think that they've had about 35 inmates go through this program in the program's entire existence. So it's also pretty small. And, and that's not the number of inmates who have died during that time. Um, a fair amount choose not to go through this program, either because they're uncomfortable with the idea of one of their peers giving them this very intimate care, um, or they are uncomfortable with when you sign up for the program, as in all hospice programs, you have to sign a waiver. It's supposed to be within the last six of the year months saying do not resuscitate. So some people interpret that as signing up to die. Um, and Amara, you mentioned that there aren't very many hospice programs that we know of um, around the country at state prisons. Why is that? Is there 
you know, the mentality that you know, th- these people are in prison for a reason? Is it hard for policymakers and others to think about showing compassion for them in their dying moments? My understanding is that it's hard to, like this type of program just really goes against a lot of, first of all, norms mm-hmm. at prisons. Um, it's an environment where men aren't allowed to touch each other at all, really. You can get in trouble for hugging on some wards. Um, and then beyond norms, also just prison code, uh, having other inmates be have such intimate interaction with each other. Uh, one of the volunteers that you profiled in your story, his name was Billy Kennedy Jr. Tell us about him. Billy. So Billy was one of the inmates that I was introduced to when I first toured the program. And he agreed to keep in touch with me. Um, it's been about a year and a half now, actually, that we've talked on the phone. And um, he has uh, sort of nearing the end of a sentence. He's been in there for quite some time, since 2001. Um, and he counts prison uh, two-pronged with his Narcotics Anonymous. The, the root of his uh, sentence was really addiction. And so other than treating his addiction, he thinks of hospice as being really the most uh, transformative process that he's been through while incarcerated. And we actually have some tape of, of Billy. You, you've been, you said you met him over a year ago, and you speak with him fairly regularly. Uh, you recorded some of that conversation with Billy. Uh, here he is telling you about how the hospice program has impacted him. Here I am taking care of somebody that, you know, is fighting to, to, to live one more minute or, or another day, you know what I mean? And so it gave me a, a better perspective on my life and what it is, I, you know what I mean, that I want to do. Uh, what I need to do, you know, instead of versus what I want to do, but what I need to do to, you know, to better my life. It definitely had a big impact, you know what I mean, to to know that I can do better than what I was accustomed to doing and, you know, living. So in in one way, he's helping that uh, the prisoner that, uh, again, is sick and most likely will be dying, but he's also getting something out of it. Absolutely. And that was really something that that drew me to the story. Um, I think that the the inmate caretakers get a lot out of this um, sort of for several reasons. One is just the act of facing their own mortality and thinking about, um, you know, whether or not they want to die behind bars. Um, And then on the other hand, it's also being trusted with this work, I think, makes a great impact, um, being trusted with you know, someone else's life, uh, caring for someone in a very fragile state. You write about uh, Billy's uh, relationship with a particular um, inmate, and I believe he was referred to as Carl Stevens. That's not his real name. Can you talk about that relationship? Yeah. Um, I think that Billy got a lot out of the relationship. Um, I mean, first, just for all those other reasons that we mentioned before about, uh, you know, the impact of caring for someone and seeing them through this uh, you know, really important part of their their life, the last part. And then also he and Stevens, uh, he would always say that in another life, they would never have crossed paths. They came from very different walks of life. Stevens lived in a rich part of Hartford. He was a journalist. Um, you know, uh, Billy, in his words, was running the streets at a young age. I guess he, and he grew up in Waterbury, sort of very different world. And But here they were... Um, together sharing really intimate conversations and Stevens would tell him stories about traveling which he really liked and they're able to 
to share stories, which I think meant a lot to Billy. Again, you recorded some of that phone conversation with Billy from Osborne. Um, here is Billy talking about that relationship with um, Carl Stevens. I'm always going to remember him telling me that I was a good person. You know, that's going to that's going to stay that's so, that's going to stay close to me because you know, like I said, you, you know, it's rare that you get that too often. So it was a real friendship, and he felt like he had more self worth. Yeah, he you know he did a good job, and it was affirmed, and I think that made him feel really good about himself, rightfully so. And and what's next for Billy? Uh, You mentioned he's been in prison for some time. Will he be released soon? And um, now that he's had an experience with hospice, is this something he's looking to do on the outside? Um, So his release date is, I think, about three years away, two or three years away. Um, He's applying for early release. I'm not sure what the status of that is. And he is definitely hoping to continue hospice um, Upon release, he's has his mother looking into volunteer programs in the Osborne, or sorry, in the uh, in their hometown area. Um, he's also in school right now through a Pell Grant, studying human services, and is interested in drug counseling. Um, and is also very aware with all of these goals that his uh, felony record will likely be a large barrier. We mentioned earlier Amar Ewing, again, a freelance reporter. Uh, she wrote a piece uh, narratively called The Prison Where Inmates Help Each Other Die with Dignity. Uh, not many uh, prisons nationwide have hospice. So what happens to prisoners? We know that the, um, the number of aging prisoners is growing um, nationwide. What happens to them if there are not programs like this? So most of them will die um, in the hospital ward inside of a prison, which is or else be transported to an outside facility at, in the very final days. Um, and it's expensive and pretty impersonal, I would say, are the, the downsides of that. Again, we're speaking with Mara Ewing, a freelance reporter. Uh, today we're talking about uh, the elderly prison population around the country. Um, here in Connecticut, some of the prisons have hospice programs. It's something that... Uh, Mara profiled a hospice program at Osborne Correctional Institution in Summers, Connecticut. Um, and any other anecdotes from when Billy was working in this, with this hospice program? Um, mentioned the one a gentleman has since passed, but how else has this helped him, and who has he helped? Um, I mean, he's helped other patients. I think he's helped himself quite a bit. Um, I got to go this February to see they have a graduation ceremony uh, for the new, the newly minted inmate volunteers. There's about 20 of them now who are trained to do this work. And um, so they had sort of a, a ceremony where people's friends and families were invited to come. And Billy was the keynote speaker, the veteran uh, volunteer speaker. And so that was a really special thing to witness. It was very emotional for him. His parents were there and they're very proud and emotional to see him standing up in front of a crowd speaking about um, how much he's learned from from caring for uh, elderly people, essentially. 
This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Today we're looking at the larger question of how state and federal governments are responding to a prisoner population nationwide that's aging. After the break, we're going to be joined by a professor who has studied hospice programs elsewhere. And we want to take your questions and comments, too. What role do you think uh, government should have in, in making prisoners comfortable in their last weeks and days? Join the conversation, 860-275-7266. Email where we live at WMPR.org. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at where we live. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Coming up tomorrow, Connecticut's Chef Magnet System is back in the spotlight, this time for reports of questionable admission practices. On the next Where We Live, handpicked or luck of the draw? We'll find out how some schools have been skirting around the state's lottery framework. Plus, college enrollment and graduation rates and Hartford's future as a college town. We'll discuss trends in higher education. That's tomorrow. Now, we know many of you tune in to Where We Live on your car radio or stream us live at WMPR.org. If you can't listen live mornings at 9 or evenings at 7, you can subscribe to Where We Live on iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, or any podcast app. Now, today we've been talking about a hospice program inside a Connecticut prison. Other states have similar programs because, as we've heard nationwide, the prisoner population is growing older. Elderly inmates are the fastest growing population inside correctional facilities today. Mara Ewing is with us today from the studios of WHYY. She's a freelance reporter, author of the narratively piece, The Prison Where Inmates Help Each Other Die with Dignity. She profiled the hospice program at Osborne in Summers, Connecticut. Joining the conversation now is Kristen Cloys, a nurse and an associate professor at the University of Utah College of Nursing. She's studied the hospice program at Louisiana State Penitentiary, also known as Angola. Kristen, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Now, you, I've been studying hospice programs in prisons. I've done a little uh, digging into Louisiana State Penitentiary, also known as Angola. Not, a, not mm-hmm. a place you think of where people, where the officials are thinking about compassion. How did that program unroll? Yeah, so that uh, that's one of the longest-running uh, prison hospice programs in the United States, and uh, they began to think about prison hospice uh, in the 1990s. Uh, at that point in time, they were seeing a number of prisoners coming in uh, that were HIV-infected, and so the need really became apparent to, to help provide care. Uh, and so um, they uh, partnered with a number of community agencies, including the Louisiana-Mississippi a hospice palliative care organization in order to try to figure out how to provide care for people that would be dying in prison. At Louisiana State Penitentiary, uh, the vast majority of people who are incarcerated there are likely to uh, live out their days there. And um, it's it's very interesting. Uh, every prison has its own culture, uh, but there was definitely something about the culture there. It was at one point the, the most violent prison in the United States. And there are many people that we talked to in the course of doing this research between 2011 and 2014, uh, where we would go. It was really field work, and we'd go and we'd we'd stay there and we observe and we interviewed dozens and dozens of people: correctional officers, administrators, uh, medical staff, nurses, um, and the inmate volunteers. And everybody felt uh, very strongly that having the prison hospice actually changed the culture for the better. How so? Um, the 
prior to this, and this is really interesting when we would interview, and again, we interviewed dozens of inmate volunteers, virtually everybody would tell the same story or some version of the same story of um, there really being a sense that uh, the administration didn't care about them before and that if you were very sick or dying, um, and this is just the story that was told again and again and from person to person, they would just put you in a room and leave you there. And um, regardless of whether or not that's absolutely factually accurate, um, when that's what people believe about the place where they are living out their days, that can create a great deal of anxiety and fear. Um, one of the greatest fear many people have that are incarcerated that are older or sicker is dying while they're inside and dying alone. And so uh, uh, Warden Kane uh, recognized that this was something that was um, a, a problem in the culture. Um, it definitely takes, uh, in many places, a strong change agent who's willing to champion something like this. Um, but in the day-in and day-out operation, um, you have to get buy-in from a number of people. So um, it, it, the, the ability to operate a program like this long-term as sustainably as it's been operating at Louisiana State Penitentiary really takes uh, a number of people in a number of roles committing to this changing culture. I mentioned that you're a nurse as well as a mm -hmm. professor at the University of Utah College of Nursing. Uh, mm -hmm. So often when we think about uh, prisoners within uh, the U.S. Uh, system here, um, we think of many of them having mental health um, issues. Yes. But the conversation doesn't always or doesn't often, I should say, look at what what it means when you have people that are aging in the prisons and yeah. the kind of chronic conditions that they um, develop. Can we talk a little bit about the the issues that they face? Absolutely. So, uh, and I think that uh, you've been raising these points throughout the show today. Um, this is definitely something. So, uh, I actually worked as a correctional health nurse, um, and I also have a background in mental health and psychiatry. And you're right. I mean, for a long time, we've been aware of the issue of risk for incarceration and recidivism and um, needs around mental health treatment for prisoners. Um, but the conversation about the aging of the prison population, uh, the increase in dementia and disability and frailty among prisoners is something that's really just, although people that live and work in prison have seen this coming down the pike for, uh, for some time now and have been saying for some time we are, we are ill-equipped to be able to deal with this, it's really only, I would say, reached the public's consciousness within the last maybe five years or so when you've really seen more academics, for example, um, addressing this issue directly. Um, and it's, it, it's, it's, uh, it's a big problem, and we have a large prison population, and as you mentioned, among the fastest-growing segments of our prison population are older inmates, um, many of whom, because of um, their histories and uh, long-standing issues with access and barriers to care and lifestyle issues, uh, not only have chronic comorbidities, that's when you have more than one long-term chronic illness, uh, you know, they have five or six. Um, and uh, being 55 in the free world, as, as they call it, is very different from being 55 in prison. Um, many people that are, you know, what we might think of as middle-aged are already quite chronically ill. 
Um, a little bit earlier, we were again speaking with Mara Ewing, who profiled a hospice program uh, in Connecticut, Osborne. Mm-hmm. Um, when we look at the fact there aren't very many hospice programs nationwide in prisons, I, I think the number uh, that I found, um, there might be even, I think, 70, according to, I think, the National Hospice and Palliative Care Organization, mm-hmm. that 2012 report. Mm-hmm. Uh, they say more than 75 hospice programs in, in U.S. prisons uh, back then. But when we look at cost and how much states have to pick up the cost for prisoners uh, when they're in a facility, does that prohibit um, prohibit uh, facilities or state officials even thinking about having something like this? I think, you know, so there's, there's a couple points to be made about that. The first is um, a lot of people want to know how many prison hospices there are throughout the United States, and that's a moving target. Um, there are uh, a range of numbers that have been published in the literature, in different studies, in different reports. And you have to always sort of ask yourself, well, well, what do they mean when they say that they have hospice? What people mean by hospice, because they are um, administered not only state by state, but sometimes, you know, locally. I mean, just two prisons within the same state system can be very different. So um, what people mean by hospice can vary widely in terms of the kind of services they provide, where they provide them, who provides those services, whether whether they're contracted with somebody from the community or they're provided by in-house correctional health staff, whether there are volunteers or not. Um, the extent of the services, is it is it one bed that occasionally has uh, a dying patient in it, or is it a dedicated unit? So we don't really have a very clear idea about how many prison hospices there actually are in the United States and how effective or functional or operational they actually are. I can say, just from personal experience, I'm not going to say which state, but I know that there's actually one state in particular that says it has hospice and uh, I uh, don't actually believe it does. Mm. So that's that's a moving target, and that's very. It would be ideal to be able to compare um, services state to state to state, but that's a that's a pretty uh, mm. tough hill to climb because the information is hard hard to track. As far as costs, um, a lot of the ways that uh, I know uh, colleagues of mine and and other folks in the community and also in uh, academia have argued about uh, the the sense of prison hospice is um, from a cost savings perspective. And again, it's a little hard to kind of get really good hard numbers behind that because it's so variable. But um, for example, a lot of prisons are in very rural areas, not in every state, but in many states, prisons are pretty remote. And if you have somebody who is um, in uh, at at the end stages of a life-limiting illness, and they're um, needing resuscitation, or uh, they're needing they're needing um, pretty extreme intervention uh, to keep them alive. And you need to transport them from the prison infirmary, for example, to a hospital that's miles away. And then you transport them, and they don't survive the transport, or they get to the hospital and they don't survive. That's an enormous cost to the prison. Um, not to mention, it can uh, create a great deal of suffering, not only for the, the, the inmate themselves, but also for uh, people around who, who, who sort of witness. It's not, you know, as a nurse, I can say it doesn't feel good not to be able to intervene and make somebody, make something better, make somebody feel better. So um, the, those kinds of issues of, you know, cost to transport versus how much it would ask, actually cost to deliver services inside the prison are things that people are looking at in terms of um, cost-benefit analysis. Mm-hmm. 
It's also another question I wanted to ask you, uh, Kristen. Um, I posed this to Mara earlier about just the question of uh, when people think, uh, like looking, looking at Angola, for instance, uh, half of the people that are imprisoned there have life sentences, um, yeah. and many of them for, I shouldn't say many, but some for serious crimes. Mm-hmm. Is, there, is there almost a perception out there of why should we care about giving these prisoners um, compassionate care in their dying days? It's really interesting because I, you, think, you think there would be, and there's definitely, um, I mean, we, there's, I've heard people say those things before, but uh, there's also, uh, at, at Louisiana State Penitentiary in particular, quite, quite an investment in the idea of redemption and in the idea of compassion. And I talked to a number of uh, correctional officers or guards who would say, you know, they're, they're here and that's their punishment. They're incarcerated. That's their punishment. You know, not, not us making their lives more miserable. That's not their punishment. Their punishment is that they're, they've lost their freedom and they're incarcerated. They're paying the price. So that doesn't mean that we don't treat them like human beings. And that was, uh, I mean, that was surprising, given, given what so many of us think about um, kind of the dynamics of correctional officers and inmates and, and the prison system, and particularly a prison system that was known as being very, very, very tough. But uh, I talked to a number of the officers who said that they actually feel better about coming to work, seeing that people are taken care of. Uh, it, it just made them feel better about the work that they do. This is where we live. We're talking about hospice programs within state prisons. Kristen Cloyes is joining us by phone, nurse and associate professor at the University of Utah College of Nursing. We're talking about this today, given the fact that uh, there's a growing number of elderly inmates in U.S. prisons around um, our country. And we've spoke a lot um, about the impact of hospice um, and compassionate care towards the dying inmate. But what about the the inmates that are volunteering? What do they get out of this, that peer-to-peer? care. Yeah, so I, that's actually one of the things I'm, I'm really, really super interested in because I think that there's, there's something to this peer-to-peer care that I think we can use in the community. Um, I think that there's lessons to learn about how we can uh, meet some of the needs that, that we have, especially, I mean, we're, we're all aging and there's a, there's a great increase in the number of uh, aging prisoners. There's also a tremendous increase in the number of aging citizens. And we're going to have to figure out ways to make sure everybody is cared for with limited resources. And so um, the, the interesting thing uh, is one of the things that I think makes the, the, the prison hospice program at Louisiana so sustainable is this inmate volunteer program. And uh, we, uh, like I said, interviewed dozens of inmate volunteers. We even had uh, the, the good fortune to be able to interview people right when they first started as new volunteers and then come back and interview them again a year later. And, um, you know, I would ask them if you could go back and tell yourself a year ago what you would need to know or how much you would change or what would be different, what would you say? And there's definitely a change process that they undergo. We've described it in a couple of papers. I think when people, when the, 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 the men first start as volunteers, it's more about them sort of proving themselves. Um, and who they really are. A lot of the, the guys would say, you know, life just moves so fast on the outside, and I was so um, mixed up in so many things. I didn't know I was a caregiver until I got in here and things slowed down, and I had the opportunity to realize that about myself, that I actually care about other people. So at first was about them as, he, as people, realizing um, who they are and that they want to be different. And then the longer they do it, some of these volunteers have been volunteering for 
program started in 98, and there's a couple of volunteers that are still there. So uh, upwards of 20 years now. And some of these guys have been attended dozens of deaths, uh, which is not usual at all. I mean, you can have hospice nurses and doctors that don't attend that many deaths. And um, it goes from being about themselves to being about their relationship to other people. And they're doing it because they, they, they want to comfort other people. They want to care for other people. They want to, they want to be there. It's the right thing to do. Uh, the golden rule comes in there at some point. And then eventually they sort of cycle through where it becomes about the community. It becomes about we, this is the kind of community we are. We take care of each other. Um, and that's a, a, a transformational process that we are actually sort of be able to track through the interviews, comparing the interviews of the newer uh, volunteers with the older volunteers who actually mentor the newer volunteers. And um, they're tremendous stewards of this program. Uh, they, they make sure that anybody coming into the program is in the program for the right reasons. And uh, if they're not, the other volunteers will very quickly um, uh, make that known and uh, that person will be gone. Uh, Kristen, you're talking to us here in Connecticut, where I believe the first U.S. hospice opened in Brantford, Connecticut. Uh, we just have a couple of minutes left, but um, any lessons that community hospice can take from uh, what you've been able to study within prison systems? Absolutely. And uh, I'm, I'm really glad you asked that question. I mean, so often we don't really think about what uh, people who are incarcerated, what, what we can learn from the situation that they're in. But um, I also do research with, uh, in community hospice and particularly with home hospice with, and, and family caregivers who, I mean, if, if you're lucky in your life, maybe once or twice, you might have to provide in-home hospice to a loved one who's dying. Um, no more than that. And often the, the family caregivers, um, they've never done it before. And it's a, it's a tremendous burden and it's a lot to ask of somebody who, who's never done that. But then you have these inmate volunteers who have this kind of hybrid combination of their experience uh, because they do uh, provide care for people time after time after time. And yet, unlike um, sort of us more professional caregivers who might be a bit more detached or professional, um, they form personal relationships with the people that they're caring for. And so you get this combination of somebody who's really invested and really cares about the person that they are, um, that they are attending in their last you know, hours and days, but also somebody who's experienced and who's done it before and who can kind of help ease the burden for family or for uh, other friends. And so if we could take that sort of peer-to-peer grassroots model, that they've developed in the prison system and figure out a way to deliver that in the community. The volunteers in the prison uh, do a lot more than volunteers in the community generally do. And if we could figure out some way to work that role into community-based delivery, um, I, I think it could be uh, something that would be really beneficial. I want to thank Kristen Cloys, a nurse and associate professor at the University of Utah College of Nursing. Thanks so much, Kristen. Thank you. Also, Mara Ewing, a freelance reporter who wrote the narratively piece, The Prison Where Inmates Help Each Other Die with Dignity. Mara, thank you so much for letting us talk about your story today. Thank you for having me. Our show is produced by Jeff Tyson and Lydia Brown. Our technical producer is Kyone Wolf. WNPR's executive producer is Katie Talarski. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Thanks for listening.